Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Philip Short, the journalist and author, joins us to discuss his latest book, Putin, His Life and Times. Our host today is Mark Aliotti. Mark is an authority on Russian security affairs and international organised crime. He's honorary professor at UCL's School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies and author of We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong. Do also check out the recent podcast interview we did with Mark on the future of modern warfare. But now, let's join Philip Short and Mark Aliotti in conversation. Here's Mark with more. These days, we are all in the shadow of Vladimir Putin. Um, And it's not just simply about the the horrors that we see on TV, about what's going on in Ukraine, or the serious crackdown that is now taking place as his regime lurches from being a strange hybrid of authoritarianism with a little bit of popular participation and room for independence of mind into a sort of rather more unpleasant thing. But also every time we have to think about paying our energy bills, every time we see the Ukrainian flags in people's windows or refugees finding a new life for themselves. So we are all at the moment in in Putin's shadow. And thus, I think it's really useful to have an opportunity to hear about Putin from someone who has put in a huge amount of effort and time and, something I'll come to later, talk to a quite phenomenal cast of interlocutors and analysts who have looked at this man, Philip Short. Now, this is a man who, after all, seems to specialise in very detailed biographies of sometimes not-so-nice people, Mao, Pol Pot, amongst others, who also has been a veteran foreign correspondent. He's been in Moscow, he's been in Washington, he's been in Beijing, all, all all the easy posts. And I think this is one of the interesting things that he brings to his study, not not just uh, this kind of meticulousness of, I think I'd be tempted to call it old school journalism. We're not necessarily looking for the instant clickbait, but the the detailed analysis, Um, but also a sense of perspective and context, precisely because of the places he's been, the people he's talked to. And his latest book is Putin, His Life and Times. And so we are going to, for for the next hour, be exploring that. And then it'll be time to put some of your questions to him. And I really want to start with one of the areas in which I I have a feeling that, that we disagree. I mean, look, we've both been looking at Putin for a long, long time. And I am of the view that this is a phenomenally boring man. 
There is a huge and fascinating Putin phenomenon, shall we say. You know, one looks at how his state operates, how people interact, the way people give meaning to Putin. And I think the reason that so many people have their own ideas as to who Putin is is because, precisely because he's such a, I'm going to say a grey blur, but maybe the modern term would be a green screen on which anyone can, can project their own thing. Now, I know that you have a, a different take on the man. So please tell us, why should I think that Putin is an interesting man? Thank you very much, Mark. Um, yes, we, I do have a different take. And you say a green screen onto which you can project anything. Uh, people have also described him as a comedian uh, who changes color uh, depending on who he's talking to. He, he's like a mirror who reflects back what people want to hear. Uh, he's a shapeshifter in some ways. I find him absolutely fascinating. So you're quite right. I don't find him boring at all. And the reason I find him interesting is precisely because he's so difficult to penetrate, to try and figure out what makes him tick. This, this boy, this kid who came from a very tough area of Leningrad, from, I wouldn't say a disadvantaged family, but certainly uh, a fairly humble family, um, working class, and who then made his way up, who got into the KGB, not into a particularly brilliant career, but uh, then continued into politics. And one of the interesting things to me was the way in which absolutely everybody who met him in Leningrad in the 1990s, when he was working for the mayor of St. Petersburg and was becoming a deputy mayor eventually, they all say, I have absolutely no recollection of him at all. He just disappeared into the wallpaper. And that's not just foreigners, not just foreign diplomats, but people like Dmitry Trenin, uh, who was the Russian head of the Carnegie Center in Moscow. They all talked about this extraordinarily self-effacing character. And it's this man, self-effacing, played his cards extremely close to his chest, very secretive, very mistrustful, who made his way up extremely quickly through the political system in Moscow, became prime minister, president for 20 years, uh, I mean, a completely different aspect of his personality. And just, just one more thing which makes me think he's extremely interesting is that he, I won't say he's the incarnation, but he's a kind of mirror of Russia itself. Maybe a distorting mirror, but a mirror nonetheless, in exactly the same way that we don't always wish to admit it, but Boris Johnson was a sort of mirror of Britain today. And Trump, uh, not an aberration, but a mirror of much of what America is today. Well, Putin reflects the society from which he came. So when you're writing about him, you're actually writing about Russia as well over the last, what, 70 years. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the, the, the compelling things that comes out of the book is that it's a, it's a story of Putin, but it's a story of, of, of Russia's evolution from a country with, with certain potentials to head in all kinds of different directions and, and why it followed the track it did. But just to bring out this, this business of, of, of a mirror, I mean, I think it's interesting that on the whole, obviously, there, there are ups and downs. But broadly speaking, Putin has enjoyed approval ratings in the 80%, uh -huh. which are, let's be honest, you know, the, the kind of figures for which most Western politicians would, would cheerfully sell their own grandmothers for. On the other hand, his trust ratings tend to be in the 30-somethings to maybe low 40s. And on one level, this would seem to suggest that a lot of Russians approve of him without trusting him, or, or else that actually, in some ways, they're almost responding to, to different Putins. I mean, how, how far do you think Russians themselves understand him? Well, the, the trust level, have Russians ever trusted their governments 
I, I don't think so. They've been badly treated by by governments, uh, you know, for hundreds of years. Russian Empire, the Soviet government. You remember the old saying: they pretend that the workers would say that they pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work. There's always been that that regarding authority, very deep mistrust. So I'm not surprised that uh, that Putin is is mistrusted, and of course he himself trusts. No one, uh, I, I, you know, when you talk about his entourage and, and the old friends, uh, you, you wonder, well, how much does he really trust them? And he himself says, you know, in my position, I can't trust anybody. And I think that's true. Some of, some of those who knew him early on say he doesn't trust anybody. He's, he's totally suspicious of absolutely everything that goes on around him. So he's like Russians in that respect. <laughs> as you say, an avatar of, of the nation. You mentioned what you hear from people who knew him way back when, before he was president, before he was Putin, shall we say. Mm. I mean, I wanted to actually also touch on the question of the sources you use before we go on to a little bit more about sort of how actually Putin has kind of risen and, and changed. Because, I mean, you have a thoroughly enviable, ridiculously long list of the people whom you spoke to over the years that you've been doing this. Mm-hmm. And they have ranged from from Russians all the way up to, shall I say, the, the, you know, well, one one I suppose can give them the benefit of the doubt and call them the great and the good in in politics, in diplomatic service, and, and such like, whom whom you spoke to. I mean, and again, this is something I'd, I'd, I'd really like to kind of tease out more. Mm. Did you feel that you were getting a different Putin from the Russians you spoke to, and compared with the Westerners who had in, encountered him, or you know, does? Do his chameleonic powers still manage to hold true when he's dealing with outsiders? I think it depends which foreigners you're talking about. Um, and it, in a way, that's what you'd expect. Uh, the, the, the Finns, for example, people like Jaco Kalela, who was uh, the national security advisor to successive uh, Finnish presidents and who dealt with Putin in the 1990s, you know, he gave one view of Putin at one particular time. Uh, American ambassadors who dealt with him, German ambassadors, they gave a different view. I found the most interesting, for not very surprising reasons, were the people who'd known him, the Russians who had dealt with him in St. Petersburg, who had really pretty lucid views of of how he was and and what sort of person he was. The foreigners were interesting because they, they usually got one aspect of Putin's personality. You know, someone like uh, Jürgen Pershing, who was uh, the Swedish prime minister, was amazed by the extent to which he could master a brief. And that came out also from Germans who dealt with him, um, from uh, British who dealt with him, people like uh, Jonathan Powell, who went with Tony Blair. The, The more people you talk to, you found that uh, the, it wasn't a law of diminishing returns exactly, but many of them would have fairly similar impressions of a particular aspect of Putin. And that was true of the Russians and it was true of uh, of the foreigners as well. Who do you think actually, I mean, of all the various people, whose encapsulation of Putin compelled you the most? Well, one of them, surprisingly, was a German, um, Franz Sedlmeier. I don't know if you come across him, but he, he was... A, a very young, I called him an arms dealer, and he objected and said, I'm not, I, no, I was a security consultant. But he, he sold um, defensive weaponry in St. Petersburg uh, to um, the police and uh, the security forces in the early 1990s. 
And he was German. He was a, a younger than Putin. His first impression of Putin was extremely disappointing. He said, you know, this guy, he's another German bureaucrat. He's German through and through. But eventually they became quite close. And I think Sedlmayr at that time was closer than any other foreigner to him. And he, he was the person who described to me first Putin as a comedian. They got on very well, and Putin uh, and Sedlmayr had a, a, a really quite, um, uh, quite, quite a strong relationship with Putin until they fell out. And uh, Sedlmayr has spent the rest of his life suing the Russian government because uh, in Yeltsin's time, the government confiscated his property. And he's actually had quite a lot of success in getting money back out of the Russians. So he's not in any sense somebody who is pro-Putin. He's very anti-Putin these days. But there was a period when he had a sense of, of where Putin was. And one of the interesting things he talks about is when Putin was leaving the KGB or was pretending to leave the KGB, because I, as far as I can make out, he never actually did so. And he said P Putin's intentions were perfectly gray. No one in the KGB knew really what side he was on. People in the mayor's office didn't know what side he was on either. And I think that is a very good insight into the way Putin operated. He kept his cards so well hidden that nobody really knew exactly where he was going. Mm, interesting. Yes, I mean, and, and, and Sadelmeyer's book, I mean, it's, 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 it's at times it feels a little bit gossipy and so forth, but again, it, it has, has those kind of insights. Mm. But one of the, the particular areas that I think that impressed me about the book is that you steer clear of some of the more showy and exciting stories about Putin, particularly his early career. I mean, there's this tales that he ran terrorists of the Baden-Meinhof group when he was in Dresden and so forth, which have very little basis, and, and you, you very clearly pick up on that. But there was another really interesting line in which you talk about Putin was Putin before he was KGB, or sorry, Putin was KGB before he was in there. So in other words, that, this idea that some people have is that in a way, his time in the KGB defines Putin. Yeah. And one can still sort of dismiss him now, say, oh, Putin, he's just KGB. I'd be interested in, in your take on, on what was the importance of his early career in the KGB for his overall development. It, I agree with you completely. I, I, it, he was Putin before he, he joined the KGB. The KGB gave him tools, ways of, of dealing with people. It taught him, I, I think he, one of the things it taught him was how to create legends and that's something that he has done all the way through his career. A, a legend is, a, I guess, a polite expression for how to lie, how to create a false story about yourself, which you can, you can then abandon when it's no longer useful. That was KGB training. Would he have been able to do that? Would he have done that in the same way if he hadn't been in the KGB? Probably not. It certainly influenced, to some extent, his worldview, but n not uncritically. There were things uh, that he learned in the KGB that he accepted uh, about the outside world, and there were things that he didn't accept. So the KGB was, was not formative. Putin, if you look right back to his childhood, it's this secretiveness. The way in which one of his school friends said, you know, there was always an area I knew that I couldn't touch. I, that we were was his closest friend, the guy who shared a desk with him when he was at primary school. But there were there were parts of Putin's, uh, how shall I say, not career, but his his personality, which no one could go near. And 
I think that has continued. The, the, the secretiveness, the, the way that there is part of him that is really hidden from everyone. And to go back to where we started, of course, that's what makes him interesting. Because if you have someone who is opaque and impenetrable, then it's a tremendous challenge to try and figure out where he's coming from and what, what actually makes him tick. Yeah, and that, I mean, sort of my view is also there's this strong insecurity at work there. I mean, that again, helps contribute to, the, to this opacity and also is part of the reason why he joined the KGB. He didn't join the KGB to be the sword and shield of the Communist Party, but because it was both, as he himself explained, that sort of opportunity for where one man can feel that he can shape world history, but it was also, to be blunt, the biggest gang in town. You know, it's, it's, where, it's where someone like him, who has no particular political patronage, can actually make it. Absolutely. And it wasn't only Putin who, who felt that way. Uh, I mean, there were loads of, of bright young men in the 19, late 60s, the early 70s, particularly the early 70s, who looked to the KGB as the best career they could possibly have. And why did they do that? Well, first of all, it was very privileged. They had knowledge which was denied to the rest of Russian Soviet society. They had the possibility of going abroad, which again, not all of them had that possibility, but there was a route which they could take, which might eventually lead them to go abroad. And that was something that was permitted to very few Russians. And uh, they carried a KGB card, a little Uzdostoverenia with uh, the KGB stamped on it, which would put the fear of God into anyone they showed it to because the KGB was, was what it was. So all these reasons. So you found people going to university and uh, registering to learn Serbo-Croat. Um, there, was, there was one dissident who told the story that that's what he'd done because he thought, you know, an obscure language like Serbo-Croat or Albanian, that would give you a better chance of joining the KGB. So, yeah, you can say, I'm not sure, in, uh, we may disagree on this point, I'm not sure Putin was insecure. That's, that's a psychological level I, I'm reluctant to plumb. But certainly the privilege, the, the idea of forbidden knowledge that you would have access to, I think these were very important. Okay, he's gone for his own reasons into the KGB, the aristocracy of the Soviet Union, just in time for the Soviet Union in due course to collapse. So he finds himself sort of out of the KGB in Leningrad, then becomes St. Petersburg, which is in itself in a country in collapse. I mean, he's actually gone through not one, but two state collapses since he was there when East Germany also sort of folded. Yeah. And yet, through the 1990s, he goes from being destitute, thinking about, you know, basically acting as, a, as an itinerant taxi driver, all the way through to becoming the heir apparent and indeed acting president. There's two schools of thought about this. One is the Machiavellian conspiratorial one that more or less says he and a kind of a coterie of other KGB types soon realized that power was there for the grabbing and built their, their schemes. And the other is that this was just opportunistic and random, that in some ways sort of Putin grabbed each main chance when it occurred to him and just happened by his trajectory to find himself in this sort of phenomenal position. It's a caricature, obviously, to, to posit these two stark views. But where's your view? How does the, the taxi-driving unemployed ex-KGB guy become president in one decade? Well, I have to say, I don't believe it. I mean, this, the taxi-driving unemployed ex-KGB guy was... For me, one of the legends, one of the lies that Putin told to quite deliberately to put people off the track because he had been attached to 
a then up and coming, very much up and coming uh, liberal uh, politician, Anatoly Sobchak, who later became mayor of St. Petersburg. And he'd been attached by the KGB, which had realized that, uh, that their big problem was not the dissidents. Their big problem was these, these pesky Democrats who were coming up under Gorbachev and who wanted to change the way the Soviet Union was run. So, yeah, uh, the, to that extent, at the very early stages, I would agree, uh, he was put where he was by the KGB. But very soon afterwards, you know, as the Soviet Union collapsed, the KGB ceased to be what, the, what it had been before. And any uh, suggestion that he went up through the hierarchy, through St. Petersburg and then on to Moscow as some kind of KGB plot, I, I, you know, I don't buy at all. I see absolutely no evidence for that. After he had been attached to Sobchak and he started rising through the political ranks in St. Petersburg, then, uh, yes, opportunity did knock and he was an opportunist. But he had this extraordinary knack of making himself indispensable. And he made himself indispensable to Sobchak so that, you know, literally after a couple of years of working in St. Petersburg, he was acting mayor of a city of five million people. And then when he went to Moscow, he made himself indispensable again. And it wasn't just chance. It wasn't so much naked ambition, though he was ambitious. He hid it very well, but he, he had ambition. But it was the ability to be in the right place at the right time when no one else was there who was an obvious choice. And if you look at his time as president, he's been very opportunistic as well. He's played a weak hand uh, as president. And when an opportunity has presented itself, he's taken it, he's used it. So that I think is a very consistent trait throughout, throughout his career. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Dot com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 
and one because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. To follow up on that, let's just move to that business of, of, of the presidency. Mm-hmm. You've talked about this man who rises through the 1990s by making himself indispensable to a selection of powerful people. First Sobchak, then uh, his, his patrons in, in Moscow. He is everyone's favorite bag man. He is everyone's favorite deputy. He was the guy, he's the guy who has his boss's back, whether that's getting Sobchak on a plane out of the country ahead of an arrest warrant or whether it's ensuring that embezzlement in the presidential property department in Moscow doesn't get investigated. So that, that makes for a great deputy. What made him, though, the choice and whose choice to be the next president rather than a deputy? I don't think there's any doubt that it was Yelt- he was Yeltsin's choice. And Yeltsin, really from 1996, when with considerable difficulty he managed to get into a second term, had been concerned about the succession, you know, who was going to succeed him. And you know better than I do that the whole list of people he tried, it seemed to go on forever. Boris Nemtsov to start with, then Primakov Primakov was a a kind of, uh, you know, stopover, but Kirienko, Stepashin, and so on and so forth. We won't bore people with all the names. And then Putin and Quite honestly, most people in the West, I don't know, you you were following at this time, felt that, uh, oh, this is yet another who's going to be there just for for, for three months as prime minister, and then Yeltsin, Yeltsin will change his mind again. But Putin answered Yeltsin's requirements in several ways. First of all, he'd shown that he was loyal by, as you mentioned, helping Sobchak to get to Paris and avoid an arrest warrant. And he took a risk in that. Uh, you know, he, if it had gone wrong, he would have been fired and that would have been the end of his career at the presidential administration. And the other thing, by the late 90s, Put, uh, Yeltsin realized or, or started to believe that you needed more spine, more steel in the administration. And steel meant people in the security forces uh, who would be able to control the business magnates the so-called oligarchs who were really having a pretty wild time of it. So on both counts, um, loyalty, demonstrated loyalty, and um, uh, steel, uh, a a strong man, uh, Putin answered the description. And the proof came very soon afterwards with the renewed war in Chechnya, where Putin, I hate to say, was successful, but he was brutal, he was bloody, he was cruel and eventually crushed the Chechen resistance three or four years later. So he's president, he's showing his, his steel as well as his loyalty, but he now, although obviously no one is ever entirely unassailable, but nonetheless, essentially he's now the guy making the decisions rather than the guy executing the decisions. Yeah. One of the interesting questions is how far Putin has changed. I mean, obviously everyone changes in 22 years, yeah. let alone 22 years as virtual 
autocrat of, of, of a nation. How, how do you see his evolution? I mean, how, how far do you think the Putin we see today is the same Putin as we saw in 1999-2000? It's a very, very difficult question to answer. I mean, obviously, he's the same man, but how much he's, he's really changed? Um, I, he's changed in, in important respects, in the sense that he believed when he came to power in 2000 that Russia's place was with Europe. He talked a lot about Russia being becoming part of the civilized world, by which he meant the Western-led world. Um, he uh, talked a lot about Russian culture being European culture and, and so on. And we tend to forget that 2001, 9-11, um, the Twin Towers in, in America, Putin was the first guy to call George W. Bush and uh, not only pledge uh, Russia's support, but actually give a lot of support uh, to the United States when uh, the, the, the invasion of Afghanistan took place. Um, so he was genuinely initially, I won't say pro-Western, but he believed that Russia, Russia's future lay with the West. At the same time, you know, he came out of a Soviet Union which had always regarded the West as, uh, as an adversary, as an opponent. And from a longer tradition where uh, the Slavophile tradition, where people believed that um, Russia had its own course, its own independent course to, to follow, and that the West was already in the 18th, 19th century, rather decadent, individualistic, superficial. So there were always these two things pulling. And um, over the first seven years, he got more and more um, dispirited, more and more frustrated with the West, um, not without reason, because, you know, so Francis Richards, who was uh, head of GCHQ, said, uh, we got a lot from them, but we didn't give very much back. And that there was much truth in that. Um, the, the Russians had, had a, a, a lot of, um, they gave quite a lot, but they had a lot of things which they really hated, NATO enlargement, obviously, but, but worse than that. Um, the United States leaving the anti-ballistic missile treaties, setting up a nuclear um, uh, a missile defense shield in Europe, and so on and so on and so on. So by 2007, um, the mood had, had completely changed and Putin was kind of giving up on the West. And then from then on, things went from bad to worse. Uh, you had the war in Georgia, Crimea in 2014, then... Um, obviously the war in Ukraine today. And the question is, and it's, it's, it's something which people who um, must make up their own minds. I, I'm not in the business of telling people what to think. Um, I think they're far too intelligent for me to do that. They can work it out themselves. But who was primarily responsible? What was the balance of responsibility? Was the West, by ignoring Russian sensitivities, which was undoubtedly true, or was Putin for going off um, uh, on a t at a tangent, going off into a, a kind of, in a way, a dark, a very dark alley, uh, whose outcome we we still can't see because the war in Ukraine, but which doesn't look good for Russia's future um, or for Putin's legacy. No, that's true. I mean, we'll we'll come to his legacy in a moment. Um, 
you said that he's undoubtedly the same man. I mean, I think it's it's worth mentioning for our audience that particularly given that you know, Russia is still a, an information-scarce society, which of course means that rumour expands to fill any vacuum. And one that I particularly delight in at the moment is the claim that, in fact, Putin has died. And that actually what we are now seeing is a body double mm. who, ha who has taken his place. Film rights will no doubt be auctioned very, very shortly for that particular story. But I, I want to get back to the, the point you make about the balance of responsibility. Um, there was, I felt, a rather unkind uh, review of your book in the Washington Post. Hmm. that appeared under the, the banners or the review that gives Putin the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and this well. idea that somehow by, by raising the, the, you know, the various Western issues, uh, frankly, I mean, in, and in many cases, serious missteps in dealing with Putin, that somehow exonerates him. Now, Going back to, you know, obviously your roots are as a foreign correspondent, mm -hmm. you know, with, with, with the responsibility to telling the truth as it stands rather than arguing a case. There seems to be more of a trend at the moment towards that, uh, you know, one, one, one has to be engaged. Did you find that difficult? Did you find it difficult trying to th sort of thread that middle path between, you know, writing a, a, a biography of someone who, let's be honest, often does deeply unpleasant things mm -hmm. and often sounds like a quite an unpleasant human being, but without making it either just simply a castigation of why Putin is a bad, bad man. Yes. Uh, th this was the most difficult biography I've, I've ever done. And, and for, for the two reasons, because Putin is, is such a hot button issue. And particularly now, obviously with Ukraine, he arouses such strong emotions. But also because you make an excellent point when you talk about you're expected to be engaged. Um, the, the world has become much more opinionated. And if you don't today, if you don't, uh, if, if you advance opinions which are not the same as your, your, your reviewer your, or your reader, they tend to say, oof, <laughs> that's not worth reading. That's, that's not interesting. Whereas honestly, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, people, engaged in a different sense. They were willing to engage in debate. They were willing to listen to uh, opposing points of view much more than I think uh, we are today. But this is a social thing. Um, and I don't think the pendulum's going to swing back very, very, uh, very quickly. So yeah, it, it was very difficult, but I think it's absolutely vital to try and give people as neutrally and objectively as possible the information from which they can make their own judgment without saying, oh, this guy is appalling, uh, look what he's done, and, and advancing what is almost a kind of propaganda uh, version of, of, of events. That's not me, and I don't intend to start doing it. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a good thing. I, I'm going to skip over Ukraine simply because I've noticed that we already have several questions, several interesting questions relating to Ukraine. And obviously, it is the, the issue of the moment. So I'll, I'll let um, our, our listeners, in a way, sort of guide that. What I would like to ask, though, is, OK, so, so Putin is now in office. He can, since he's changed the constitution, he can stay in office until his 80s, until the next decade. Do you think that Putin can leave office now? Not now. I think he wanted to. Um, I think... I, you know, I really do think that uh, he's he's dropped hints over the years 
And of course, hints are very ambiguous and he's not any, he's not someone who's going to give away what his intentions are very, very far from that. But, um, I think his hope was that if he could, in his words, sort out the Ukraine, um, uh, bring the Ukraine, bring Ukraine back into the Russian fold and show that the Americans weren't able to stop it. That was a you know, subsidiary, very, not even subsidiary, but a very important part of what he was trying to do. If that had all gone well, if Kiev had been taken in a matter of days, as people thought would happen, um, uh, and he'd been able to put into power a puppet government, if you'd like, um, then I think, yes, he, w he would. We would now be talking about uh, Putin thinking of, thinking of beginning a political transition, either leaving power completely or more likely moving sideways into some other, uh, some other position, but um, a, a new president taking part, place. Um, now, I think that's, that's gone, that ship has sailed. And we won't, I don't believe, we'll be able to have any idea really what's going to happen next until we know what happens on the battlefield, until we can see how the war in Ukraine uh, is going to end. And I can't see that. Um, I can make guesses, you know, frozen conflict, stalemates, impasse, and all that kind of thing. But how long it'll take and how it'll work out, I don't think any of us can pretend to know. Sure. Well, let's assume then, and some people would hope, that Putin dies tomorrow and that his body double does not take over. <laughs> At this stage, what would be his epitaph? I mean, we know that he's obsessed with history and his own place in history. What will the historian say about him now? I think it's a very mixed record. Um, you know, I was, I was in Russia with the BBC in the 1970s, uh, 50 years ago, which I probably shouldn't admit to, but it's a long time. And uh, I was bureau chief. I spent, lived there for three years under Brezhnev. If you compare Russia today, even after what has happened to Ukraine, with Russia, the Soviet Union 50 years ago, it's a different world. I mean, it's really a different planet. People's mentalities, especially in the big cities and especially the younger people, are very, very different. Now, that's not all Putin's doing. Uh, it's Gorbachev, it's Yeltsin, and it's Putin. But he, he does have part of the credit for that. On the other hand, he has lamentably failed um, to make Russia a more democratic society. I think you said it sort of used to be partly a, a veneer of democracy over an authoritarian state and the veneer is wearing very, very thin. He hasn't made the economic reforms. So it's a very mixed record. And I'm not sure it can be summed up in two words for an epitaph. No, it'll obviously need a very large gravestone. <laughs> okay, let's switch now to questions from the audience. Quick reminder, if you still want to ask a question, we already have a, a nice crop, but there's always room for more, um, then just use the, the ask a question button at the, the bottom of the screen. So look, I mean, we're going to have to talk obviously about the, the miserable conflict in, in Ukraine. Um, there's a nice question from Irina, who wonders, you know, to what extent was NATO enlargement that, that provoked Putin into invading Ukraine? And what do you think of Boris Johnson's claim that it was caused by Putin's Toxic masculinity. <laughs> yes, we had some. We had some pretty silly claims, didn't we? We had the the small man syndrome. I think that was uh, 
that was Boris Johnson. And Ben Wallace simply said he was a lunatic. I'm not sure that that helped anyone understand the, the, the problems that have occurred. Um, I don't think that was the fundamental point. Uh, NATO enlargement, yes. Uh, it, it, I won't say it was a pretext. It, it, it's something the Russians have, not just Putin, the whole of the Russian establishment has felt uh, that any, um, if Ukraine were to, to join NATO or were to become even an outpost of NATO, a kind of, um, you know, a, a forward base, that that would be crossing a red line, which for Russia was unacceptable. Um, but it's, it's not NATO enlargement alone. It's the whole bundle of things. And I, I think something we don't recognize too much, but we probably should, um, Blinken's counselor, Derek Chollett, said uh, shortly after the war had started, he, he acknowledged that, that NATO enlargement and the whole business of Ukraine and its relations to NATO was something that the Americans had not been prepared to discuss with Russia. And I think it was, it was that lack of communication about all the, the, the grievances and the problems in the relationship between Russia and America, which fundamentally uh, was what, what drove this, this war. It was Putin's attempt, and it has been marked by miscalculations and, and an awful lot that went wrong and that was screwed up, but it was Putin's attempt to make the United States recognize that it actually had to take into account Russian sensitivities and Russian concerns. And one has to be, one has to be honest, I think. America has been very reluctant to communicate and to engage with Russia on, on these, the, these issues which the Russians felt were absolutely fundamental. Yes, and very often when the Russians did talk about these kind of issues, the Americans assumed that they were actually trying to signal something else or that this was playing to the gallery rather than actually being genuinely what they actually believed. Yeah. So mo moving on from that, I mean, so so now we find ourselves, you know, for whatever reasons, in 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 this situation, in this terrible conflict, and in many ways there are two wars going on. There is a very twentieth century war that's happening in Ukraine as the Ukrainians you know, fight for their sovereignty and their, and their independence, and then there's a very twenty first century non kinetic war being played out between the West and Russia, largely through the economy, but also political, cultural, all kind of other means. In that context, we've got a question from Emma. Is I mean, do you think that sanctions against Russia are actually going to work to change Putin's policy towards Ukraine in the long term? No, I don't think sanctions will work. I, and I think there are many examples. If you look at uh, uh, you know Iran and sanctions against Iran, which is a much smaller country and was much more vulnerable than, than Russia was, um, uh, sanctions will hurt, and they'll hurt more and more. Um, but they're hurting both sides. They're hurting the West as well. Um, but as long as as uh, the, the the countries which are not part of the West, in other words, the, the global South, China, India, uh, as long as all those countries uh, sit on the fence and refuse to back sanctions, their effect is going to be limited. Uh, so even in terms of, of the economy, I think we need to be rather prudent about saying, oh, well, the Russian economy is going to collapse. It's showing no signs of doing so at the moment. In two or three years' time, well, it may be, it will be in a more difficult situation. But certainly that alone is not going to change Putin's policies. 
Yes, there was a nice uh, characterization from Marlene Laruelle at George Washington University who said, yes, the Russian economy is becoming dysfunctional. However, it is functionally dysfunctional. Um, the Russians are used to operating in these rather sort of straightened circumstances and unfortunately it's, for it, us can do it well. It's always been dysfunctional. <laughs> so they're used to it, absolutely. Precisely, precisely. Um, is there, I mean, you, see, you said that it, it's not your place to tell people what to think, but let me just throw in a little supplementary there. So what would you counsel our government to do that it's not doing already? Or isn't there anything that can be done? Well, I would. One of the things which I think we are doing wrong, and it's I say we, um, Britain to some extent, but above all the United States, is to portray this as a struggle between democracy and autocracy, because if you are a third world country, um, you probably don't have a terribly democratic government, and all the autocrats uh, who are listening to Joe Biden say, "Oh, this is a, a kind of existential study struggle between uh, democracy and autocracy." So, well, well, wait a minute, I, I'm on the autocrat side, so that is a, that 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 is very foolish. It's a way of pushing away potential allies who, had the Americans said. This is all about territorial integrity. It's all about uh, one country in making a land grab for another. Then territorial integrity is pretty much something everyone can agree on. Uh, they haven't. So that's something that I would suggest could do differently. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and you're totally right about the degree to which in the global south, this is just simply considered to be a northern war and nothing really to do with them except insofar as they then find themselves hungry because the grain isn't flowing or caught by secondary sanctions, which means that if they buy cheap Russian oil, the Americans will come down hard on them and so forth. We certainly haven't presented a narrative there. Yeah. Given, therefore, the unpredictability of this conflict that you yourself have said, you know, one, one should always mistrust people who claim to know either what Putin thinks or how the war will, will progress. But do you think that, therefore, and this is a question that's coming in from someone who, who didn't leave a name, but, but thanks for this question, um, that the unpredictability of the Ukrainian conflict is undermining Putin's grip on power? No, I think that's wishful thinking. Putin has organized, and this is something, Mark, that you have looked at very carefully over the years. He has created a support base. He's created uh, checks and balances in his system, which mean it's very difficult to see a threat. Uh, to Putin's grip on power. I, I don't think that's going to happen. It's it's like the stories that, you know, oh, he's suffering from cancer. He's very, very ill. It's wishful thinking. He's in perfectly good health. Bill Burns, the CIA chief, said so, but uh, you've watched him over the years and I've watched him over the years. I see absolutely no sign in his daily schedule, in the way he behaves, that he's anything other than in perfect health. Uh, we are going to have to deal with Mr. Putin for some considerable time. Yes, interesting. I mean, and in the process, you you actually also uh, answered the question from, from Katie, which was precisely about the rumours that, that Putin is suffering from cancer. Um, it has to be said, unfortunately, that if, if you are a, a, a Russia watcher, you know, every few months, there is another story about another ailment that Putin is allegedly suffering from that will mean he is dead within six months. And I think it's it's been at least four years that he's going to be dead within six months. Well, 
Yes, that's how it is. I also wanted to have a little sort of spin-off question on that. Again, the, the element of, of, of the rumours and the, the, the stories about, you know, that, that Putin is going to be sort of imminently dead and such like, and, and you've presented a lot of this as, as wishful thinking, the idea that sanctions are going to bring the tyrant to his knees or that somehow cancer or, or whatever else is, is going to sort of remove him. If we assume that Putin is going to be a fixture of international politics for some years, how would you characterize the relationship that is going to emerge between us and Russia? I mean, is it a, a new Cold War? Can we use the old metaphor? Or is it going to be something new that we're talking about? Well, my, my view is that one should not speak in terms of a Cold War because the essence of the Cold War was that there were two ideological systems which were competing for dominance and domination in the world, communism on the one hand and capitalism on the other. And that is not the case. Neither Russia nor China are trying to export their system of values and their system of beliefs. So Cold War, no. But yes, conflict, uh, an adversarial relationship, um, absolutely. And the, the, the question to me is, you know, how we're in, now we have a war in Ukraine. How are we, eventually, we are going to have to find a way once again to live together because Ukraine is geographically where it is. Russia is geographically where it is. They are going to continue to be neighbors, and neighbors have to find a, a modus vivendi. Um, I have no idea how that's going to happen, but I do know that at some point it is going to ha happen. And I would, I would just make one more um, observation, and that is the context in which this is happening. You have Russia challenging American domination in Europe. You have China challenging American dominance in, uh, in Southeast Asia, in the China Sea. Um, we are, I believe, uh, living through an absolutely fundamental period of transition in which um, one hyperpower uh, America, which has been dominant since the end of the Cold War, is having to face the prospect of a multi, much more multipolar world uh, emerging, in which it will no longer be the absolutely unchallenged uh, hegemon. And th these kinds of changes don't happen very often. I guess it's probably 10, 20, 30, 40 years before we'll see the end of it. It's, it's going to be decades. But what is happening in Ukraine and the end game in Ukraine has to be seen against that background. You talk about uh, having to reach some kind of modus vivendi. Now, again, one of the sort of the classic responses is, you know, how can one have a modus vivendi with a nation that uh, you know, invades others or indeed reaches out and tries to kill people in the West? But of course, this is a regime that has also been known to kill people at home. One of the questions we've had is, why do you think Putin hasn't had Navalny killed, though he did try, like other opponents of his? Why is Navalny sim simply languishing in prison? Well, I'd pick you up on, on the words, like other op opponents, which I'm sure came from the questioner. Um, one tends to blame Putin for every murder that takes place in Russia. Um, this is not entirely new. It, 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 it happened to um, in the time of troubles to the Boris Godunov at the, the 16th Century, so you know th this is a long story. But um, uh, why has he ha not had Navalny killed? He certainly tried. 
I have no doubt that the attempt on uh, poisoning Navalny was on Putin's, um, with Putin's approval uh, and on his orders. I, I don't think it could have been any other way. Why now does he leave him in prison? Um, it would be a bit, a bit crude, wouldn't it, to bump him off in his prison cell. Um, he's too high profile. Uh, he, I, I just don't think he, there is, there is any need. You know, it's, it's all kind of cost benefit for Putin, which is the greater cost and which is the greater benefit for the moment, at least, and probably for the foreseeable future, better to leave Navalny alive in prison. So is there going to be a new Navalny? Is there going to be a new generation of, of political oppositionists who can arise? Or again, are we in a sort of Soviet style era now in which there will be dissidents, but many of those will be in exile? Well, that's certainly what it looks like, isn't it? The the the, the brain drain, the, the number of people who've been going into Latvia, into Georgia, into the West uh, has, has been very striking. Um, the trouble, you know, it's far easy, easier to write history than to speculate about what the future is going to bring. And you're asking about the future. Um, I will there be another Navalny? Will there be will there be some other charismatic leader? John, I mean, you know. Who, who knows the answer to that? I can't see it. Is all I can say. I can't. I can't see where it's going. How it's going to happen. Um, but one can always be surprised. Um, I, I think much more likely we are we are looking at um, a period of dissent, which is crushed in Russia very effectively, apart from a few brave souls who lift their heads, and uh, a, 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 an exodus to, to towards the West. Okay, one one last uh, sort of line of questions that I want to throw at you, um, which you know continue in the vein of, of deeply unfair questions. Is look, you've spent all these years looking at Putin, uh, talking to people about Putin, reading about Putin, and so forth. If you had the opportunity to actually talk to him, and we, we're going to have to assume that he well, he's he's not really one one for drinking. So we'll have to assume he's been dosed with sodium pentothal, so you can actually get an honest answer from him. What is it that you haven't been able to find from other ways that you'd actually want to get from the horse's mouth? Oh, I th I think the most the most interesting things are well twofold: um, the relationship with the West. What really um, because th there's. Okay, it's an accumulation of things which have you can see which which have soured Putin on the West. But there's usually, for for all of us, there's something, there's a moment at which you think this has really gone beyond beyond belief. I, I I can't take it anymore. And so I'd love to know, in his words, what made him give up on the West. And the other thing is, the the way that. Um, you, you talked about Russia having, and I absolutely agree, um, being you know kind of twenty percent um, uh, openness and, and dynamic debate, forty um, percent. You say kleptocracy. I, it's a word I don't like, but but yes, corruption and forty percent um, authoritarianism until about two thousand and eighteen. So, what has made it more and more dictatorial? And less and less free. What? What? I mean, my my explanation is partly to prepare for a political transition. I think Putin 
initially started cracking down because he wanted absolute control for the time when he would leave the presidency and move uh, to, to, to another position and the political transition would get underway. It's not going to happen now, um, or at least not, not at this point. Um, so uh, I'd like to ask him that question. You know, mm -hmm. is that what you were trying to do? <laughs> but I wouldn't believe a word he said because, you know, one thing Putin is very good at is disguising um, what he really thinks. And you say he doesn't drink. He, he actually does quite like Georgian wine, but not sufficiently to make him tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... I, I could end with a, with a plug for Georgian wine, which is indeed thoroughly splendid in most cases. But let me instead end with with a plug for the book. A little sort of embarrassing admission when when I when I first received the copy of the book and I looked at how thick it was, I will confess as a part of me that my heart sank because I have spent so much time reading about Putin. But <laughs> unlike academics, fortunately, journalists know how to write. Um, and I, I do. I mean, I really would would commend it to everyone. I mean, it's, it's a it's a fascinating attempt to unpick this chameleon, if I can mix my metaphors in a very ugly way, and, and work out what's really going behind it. There's all kinds of stuff which is, you know, both what one would expect and what one would not expect, which is really the sort of the ideal way a biography ought to be. So it's, it's well worth a read. And so let me just conclude by giving my thanks to Philip, uh, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.